Hi, I'm Sean Murray, and this is The Conversation, where we take an alternative look at political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. In this show, we hope to pick, probe, investigate, and uncover the stories that you want to hear. We go where mainstream won't go. From sordid headlines about British state broadcasters to scandals surrounding Ireland's own RTE, is the public losing faith in their official media mouthpieces? This week, we dissect the crisis in public service broadcasting and look at how independent journalism may well provide a solution. Before I introduce today's guests, we took the conversation cameras to check the public's response to these latest scandals. After the latest scandal, there's no more confidence in RT, and I just think the whole thing needs to Obviously, there does need to be a big shake-up because it's been dreadful what's happened. And a lot of people's faith in RTE has diminished, so I don't know where it goes from there, but they'll have to shake or do something, do something positive that the public wants, which usually politicians want, but it's, um, they, what they want is necessarily what the public wants, but uh, there's nothing new there. See, once the presenters are involved in a scandal, it should never be on TV again. There should be a, an absolute full overhaul of it all. People don't have any more faith in RTE anymore. That RTE needs a new reshuffle to help it get better. I don't really watch the news, but I, I personally think that the BBC and the RTE are both corrupt. And uh, I think ones in my generation don't, don't really watch it as much. Nobody, it's no surprise to anybody anymore. Everybody gets their information now off the uh, social media, digital platforms. Um, nobody pays attention to the, the broadcasters at all now. As always, we are joined by our resident co-presenter, Michelle Gildernew. Michelle is the current MP for Fermanagh and South Tyrone. She has served in the Northern Ireland Assembly as a former Minister for Agriculture and Rural Development and chairperson of the Health Committee, amongst other things. Michelle has been a Sinn Féin activist since her teens and has been elected almost continuously since 1998. And today's special guest is a familiar face on your TV screens. His work has seen him face down the criminal underworld around the UK and is rarely involved in a project that doesn't ruffle a few institutional feathers. In his latest documentary, he looks at the case of young Noah Donoghue, a 14-year-old boy that went missing in Belfast in June 2020, only to be found six days later in a storm drain. Donald McIntyre, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Firstly, Donald, what do you think about the current crisis in journalism? Well, I think uh, we're now looking at journalism and our institutions in a way we've never really looked at them before. And normally it's the job of journalists, primarily within the BBC and institutional media, to look at other institutions. And now they're looking at the mirror and it's quite difficult. For the BBC, there's a lot of scar tissue there. They've had Jimmy Savile, they've had Jonathan King, and other failures in respect of managing and, and reviewing and engaging with the uh, crimes and peccadilloes of some of their high-profile presenters. So it's a difficult time for uh, these institutions and for the media in general, because uh, the, both the BBC and, in, uh, in this case, an RTE, they are such huge players. They're nearly monopolies in the media conversation in these islands. Do you think these institutions are inherently set up to defend themselves? Well, I think, like any major institution, their first uh, order of business is to protect themselves, Michelle. That's what they do. And I think when you look at the BBC and even RTE and you see them going through their uh, interrogations, you know, in the Dáil committees and, and over uh, in the Houses of Parliament, 
it does remind you a little bit of the Catholic Church. You know, the first thing they do is defend themselves, right? And they, they understand that these will just be bumps in the road. So they're only desperate to get through this moment to move the conversation on. Will things change? I think, to be honest, in terms of RTE, we are looking at a really radical change in public perception, not just of the channel, but also the people who run the channel. Mm -hmm. channel. In relation to the BBC, I think um, there is increased competition. The BBC's status as the primary broadcaster is slightly diminished. And to see Hugh Edwards, the voice of the nation, going through his own private and, and public crisis, and he who brought us the funeral of the Queen and these great state occasions, then, you know, I mean, in many ways, the veil has slipped and we don't know whether the BBC will ever be seen in the same light again. Donald, your latest documentary sees you instigate an alternative investigation into the death of young Noah Danahoe. Uh, but before you let us know, let's have a look at the trailer. intention to meet his friends and to have a day and come back again so whatever took him off that route was something pretty pretty serious unfortunately I have some very sad news while we have no official identification we do believe it is the missing teenager Noah Donahoe it's one of the most traumatic, complex incidents that I've ever seen in my life. And I have experience of assisting families in their search for answers. Myself and my sister Neve, there's no way that we are stopping until, until we find out, you know, we will not stop from nowhere. I will accept the truth. Just give me the truth for Noah. He deserves it. Just bringing it back to the Noah Donahoe investigation, mm -hmm. do you think the police have dropped the ball early on? Well, I think in relation to Noah Donahoe case, I think it's a really interesting case in respect of, you know, were the police incompetent, were they corrupt, um, uh, or were they, uh, ac is this 
is the way they investigated this case exactly the same as they investigated all other cases, but now we just turned a bigger and better spotlight on it. I think they've dropped the ball early on. I think, to be honest, that the uh, Noah Donahue investigation was sacrificed on the altar of the peace process. They were so concerned about you know, the silly season blowing up, the city blowing up in some kind of sectarian uh, um, war over what happened to Noah that they decided to bring a veil down it to such an extent that they declared no crime was committed here or at play here. I, this is three and four days before the body was actually found in very odd and controversial circumstances. And then mainstream media were pretty cautious around their reporting of Noah's case. Do you think they could have played a greater role or where do they fit in? Well, I think the thing is with mainstream media, the journalists are all ch chit-chatting and among themselves and among the PSNI, who they would fraternise with, of course they would do in the establishment, they're all saying there's nothing to see here. Well, they might say that if the police um, were keen to kind of hide and disguise many of their own failings. At that stage, I mean, the question was about, wasn't about the failure of the investigation, which I think is pretty much accepted now, and certainly we would feel that's the case. I think it was their um, failure to do the basics. And I think, I think, I think the, 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 the journalists felt that everybody was looking for a sectarian outcome to blame somebody. And, you know, as an independent journalist, we're coming to this, we say, we're looking at questions here, right? Questions for the PSNI, questions for Northern Ireland society. But most of all, this is a beautiful young child who deserved a proper investigation. And the one thing we can say with certainty, he didn't get a proper investigation. And the PSNI and the institutions around it have not been transparent. And I think the, the journalists here are kind of suspicious of, of people, you know, there may be some people who are, who are sectarian and coming to this with a sectarian lens and saying, oh, they did it, they had something to do with it. But that doesn't necessi necessarily mean that they're wrong. <laughs> they may be wrong with their motivations or their lens, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there was definitively no third party intervention. There may very well have been, but we think it deserves an investigation. And I think for sure, the institutions, the press have been scared of the story, the police have been keen to dampen down the story, and at the moment um, we've come in and we're asking questions, and they're uncomfortable questions. We're now three years in, Donald, uh, and we also have to be cautious. We have a coroner's inquest that's ongoing. Where do you see the case now going? Well, I think from the outset, the coroner said, and the coroner is God in his own court, but he's not God and he'll have to be held accountable. I think it will still engender a huge amount of distrust among the institutions, the PSNI and the coronial process. And it's for this reason. They set out and they were not transparent about the investigation. Two years in, and we discover, and now the public has discovered, that the PSNI has withheld key information from the family that Noah, on the day he went missing, in the early hours, um, went walkabout in Belfast City Centre for 35 minutes. And then they ambushed the family with this information and his poor mother Fiona. And they're thinking, why didn't you tell us this earlier? And they never gave any explanation. The one bizarre explanation they gave, and not it was by way of fact rather than uh, explanation, they said the delay in some part was because some footage uh, of a from a building nearby had to be sent to Dublin for processing. And that really does not add up to me because obviously they had footage from Noah's own home and they had that in the week Noah disappeared 
and they could have asked questions of the public, a public appeal, because they knew while he was missing that he had gone walkabout. At that stage, any investigator would say, is there county lines involved? Where is he gone? Is he carrying? Is he a courier? Is he acting out for somebody else? Is he going to meet somebody else? These are all the questions an investigator would ask. And the public is, uh, are, they're built to help in these kind of appeals. And they weren't called upon, but I think the biggest sin, and I think it's a question for the coroner as well, is that why do they not inform the family earlier? The thing is, the coroner directs the police in this investigation. So, um, and the coroner said, I know everything. To give the coroner his due, it's very difficult for him, but it may come to arrest, an unsatisfactory arrest, in a verdict of misadventure. So, Donald, we've seen the failure of some of the, the state broadcasters. Do you think there's now a, a greater role for independent journalism, given the recent scandals? Well, I think there has always been a need for independent journalism. I think only now do we really realise um, what kind of formidable institutions our state broadcasters are and we also kind of no longer kind of we can reflect that they're not that independent they are obviously are there to perpetuate and support the status quo but it's so important to have alternative voices particularly in highly contested political arenas and we've seen the uh, uh, the growth of social media and the citizen journalists alternative voices and I'm reminded the only requirement to be a journalist isn't to spell, isn't be able to write, isn't be able to kind of work auto-cue. It is simply to declare yourself one and to be able to voice your opinion. And that's a wonderful thing about this profession, right? There is no degree, no doctorate, no, uh, no specific vocational course that gives you a license. Declare yourself a journalist, give yourself an opinion, share that, and you're a journalist. Does it help your nose and, well, you see, this is the thing about they always say investigative journalists, and of course, the whole point is to be curious, and I think that is, you know, to be no, uh, nosy, uh, curious, interested in, in, in people. And I think I, uh, there are so many different types of journalists. Some people are interested in, in writing about their passion. It could be needlepoint, it could be canoeing, it could be about changing the world, social work, or it could be, you know, gangland stuff or, or politics. But I think those alternative voices, and no more so than you know, in Northern Ireland, where uh, the media and the role of the media has been so contested and over decades and so much censorship. But I think people only realise uh, what the censorship is, and only, and it's obviously it's immediately apparent to you if your voice is being censored. Mm. But to everybody else, it's nearly invisible. And for the audience is sick, what can independent journalism do that these institutions can't? Well, they can ruffle feathers, they can talk to people, they can create controversy, they can poke and question. It reminds me of when you do um, sports journalism, and I used to do a lot of sports journalism, and uh, Paul Kimmage, very famous Irish cyclist, I worked in the Tribune, and he was the first cyclist to what they called spit in the soup, which is tell the secrets of the peloton, the drug use and all of that stuff. And, and the problem was, many of the cycling journalists, they understood what was going on, but like um, uh, the relationship between you know, crime journalists who were often too close to the police, mm -hmm. the sports journalists were too close to the sports teams, so it wasn't in their interest to spoil the party. If you did stories contrary to the police or contrary to the sports teams, then your access is denied, your uh, employment, your career is dependent upon that access. But being independent, we don't care. We're not, our livelihoods are not dependent on relationships with police officers or institutions. We don't have to keep going back. We're outsiders and we can start throwing questions like grenades to institutions 
and we're very uncomfortable. And uh, it's all about um, being, it's not particularly being brave, it's just <laughs> not caring. And I think, you know, it's uh, being a lot older and there were times when I might have cared, I've been bothered. But now, you know, I'm out of a certain age, I'm experienced, lived a lot, so I don't really care if I upset somebody, if it's obviously for the right reason and journalistically sound. So with the current crisis then at RTE and the allegations mm. of cronyism that mm. we've heard, do you see that then as a, as a golden opportunity for a complete revamp for a more independent broadcaster to emerge? Well, I think the problem is that's not going to happen because RTE is still such a powerful institution. I think what it means is that the apparatchiks, the management of that, the accountants who are running the ship, I think they were, they were treating the presenters as the other. They were treating the presenters as the public kind of recognize the presenters. They think you're somebody special and different and should be revered and celebrated rather than recognizing we're just normal people. So you had these people and they were revering and, and felt that th their presenters should be treated differently to everybody else. And you said, hold on a second. You have now, and the presenters themselves, have broken this bond of trust over money. And I think the one thing about Irish people is that the, you know, they will prince or pauper, right? Now, I know we live in a commercial society, but they, they want to engage with people on their real values. And if you're on a radio or on TV, they, they invite you into their living room. And they do so by choice because they recognize and believe in you. And when that veil is brought down and they realize, oh, you're just money grubbing and you're saying you're taking a pay cut and you really haven't. And then we hear all these little mis these excuses and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, my little kid said the same thing with the chocolate on the face. I swear I never touched the chocolate cake. You know, we're beyond that. And it's the audience is disappointed. And I think the audience in Ireland and Republic are disappointed mm -hmm. with RT. Will it affect a bit of change? Well, they won't be doing this again. And uh, will some change, but the institution by and large will still serve those who work in it and will serve the managers, those who are the uh, accountants. So, taking that all in, uh, mm. and I'm thinking of young, ambitious journalists, mm. so what you're saying is endeavour to become a pariah within broadcasting? No, I think just don't be afraid. There's always a line. I mean, you, the first thing is, you know, be afraid to ruff, ruffle, don't be afraid to ruffle feathers make noise, but I think you start off learning your trade and I think, you know, there are lines you shouldn't cross, you know, being offensive and cruel and, and unkind unnecessarily at, without you know, asking firm questions. But it's also, I think, about being calm. And it's also, you know, when you hear a really good lawyer and a good lawyer with integrity engaging with an adversary, they're polite but strong. You, you never uh, mistake them for operating asking questions from the other side, but they can do so politely and with respect. And so in respect of the Noah Donahue case, I can challenge the coroner's role and his actions and make him accountable without disrespecting him or disrespecting the institution. You know, our job as journalists is to, uh, you know, uh, is to be the irritant, to challenge, to provoke, that's our job, to ask the uncomfortable questions. And I think where you have a weak media, then you have a weak democracy. You're still tuned into The Conversation, your weekly alternative probe of political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle Gildenew, alongside our special guest, investigative journalist and documentary maker, Donald McIntyre. So, Donald, how do we make these institutions more accountable? I think we make them much more permeable 
to kind of uh, critical analysis and, and examination of their accounts and their practices. And I think that also means that the accounting companies who signed off on those practices have to be under much more scrutiny. And uh, the problem is, it's, uh, some of the media at a certain level, and I've been part of this, right, they're very accommodating because they're, they're looking at their job in RTE. Every newspaper uh, reporter wants to uh, work on TV. Every TV guy wants to have their newspaper column. So there's this kind of cross-fertilization, and that's problematic because you want there to be a bit of you know, uh, salt in the eye, a bit of grist, a bit of confrontation, so and a bit of frustration. I think the genie is now out of the bottle mm. down in Dublin. They're now they realise that actually the apparatchiks, the accountants, the accountancy companies can't be trusted to, to run the show the way it should be run. So I think it will improve. But I think the opportunity for other media newspapers, columnists, to hold or TE in particular to account, I think, and of course the Dáil, the Dáil Public Accounts Committee, I think um, they'd better just work a little bit harder. Yeah. So Donald, it's been great having you on the couch today, giving us the chance to ask you the questions for a change. Thank you. What is next? What's, what's your plans for the future? Well, I think we've been, I think the Noah Donoghue case is really quite profound because we were struggling to get funding from particular broadcasters on what is a very, very important programme. Not a single programme had been done on the Noah Donoghue case and we're now three years in. So we got together a crowdfunding initiative along with some other funders and we've already raised, uh, you know, well, we've raised uh, close to you know 120 130,000 pounds so the public is saying we want you to do this mm. so now I think I can see myself relying upon the public to do uh, more independent films supported by the public so instead of having the license fee payer I've invented my own kind of license fee contingency and constituency and I feel quite liberated by that mm. it certainly gives you more freedom doesn't it yeah absolutely you know and I've heard a, a, a small rumour that you are involved in the case of Giovanni De Stefano. Well, he's a remarkable uh, lawyer. He was lawyer to some of the, the greatest and worst dictators, from Saddam Hussein, and he, uh, he's worked with Arkan, uh, Arkan in Yugoslavia, a warlord, and any number of despots and killers and, and serial rapists. And uh, he was proved to be a reasonably successful lawyer, although some of his clients were hanged, as he says himself. And then he got convicted. This Italian lawyer, he got convicted for masquerading as a lawyer because he didn't have the qualifications. So he's a remarkable figure. He was actually a brilliant mind and a brilliant lawyer, but without qualifications. Little problem uh, practicing. However, he's now spent eight years in jail, so now he's been released. He's now in Italy. And the interesting thing is, so he's been convicted of fraud in the UK, released back to his homeland in Italy. And where do convicted fraudsters, what do they do in Italy? Well, you should all know, convicted fraudsters in Italy always ultimately end up in politics. So we'll be following his next journey into politics in Italy. Well, I think Donald, we can all agree that we'd be looking forward to that one. Now, history is a constant source of debate and contention here in Ireland. And with the annual marching season and our recent rear view, it's a great opportunity to examine the Orange Order and the Drum Cree standoff 25 years on. This summer marked 25 years since the infamous Drum Cree standoff. In 1998, the newly established Parades Commission ruled the Orange Order should not march down Portadown's Gurvahi Road on the return leg of its annual march from Don Church. Over 2,000 police and British soldiers were deployed to enforce the decision. 
The standoff and subsequent violence that ensued illustrated to an international audience once again the fragility of the peace process that was in its infancy in the north of Ireland. The Orange Order, an institution founded in 1795 in order to maintain the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland since the plantations, had been using the route as part of its traditional march every year on the last Sunday before the 12th of July. However, over a number of years, the route had become contentious, with protests from residents living along the mainly Irish nationalist Garvahi Road. During this period, there were a number of highly contentious parades that residents objected to due to the sectarian nature of the marchers, where banners of loyalist paramilitaries and anti-Catholic songs were deployed to intimidate nationalist communities. On the lower Ormo Road in Belfast, similar displays were commonplace. And as the marchers passed the spot where five local residents were gunned down by loyalist paramilitaries only a number of years before, some felt the need to taunt the families of the dead. Incidents like these motivated residents to collectively organise and put an end to these yearly displays of triumphant sectarianism. In one of the most infamous incidents in the history of the conflict in the north of Ireland, three Catholic children, Richard Quinn, 11, and his brothers Mark, 9, and Jason, 8, were killed in an arson attack on their home in Ballamoney, County Antrim. Their deaths created widespread international revulsion. 25 years on, and the Democratic Unionist Party, a political party formed by the late Firebrand Presbyterian preacher, Ian Paisley, is now calling for the Orange Men to be able to walk through the nationalist area once again. After 25 years of relative peace, what good could possibly come from soaking up the memories of a period many thought had long gone? It seems for some, romantic notions of a dominant orange utopia still hold sway. Is someone going to tell them? And that does it for another week. We'd love for you to join the conversation, share the link to today's programme and help us grow our audience across all our social media platforms. I'd like to thank our special guest Donald McIntyre, and my co-host, Michelle Gildenew. In the meantime, the conversation will be back next week with more investigations and analysis. I'm Sean Murray. Bye for now.